0: The U.S. Open begins Monday, the usual all-day, every-day, exclusive live coverage from ESPN-TV, ESPN3, and the ESPN app. Lots of storylines heading into the last major of the year. And here to sort it out are Brad Gilbert in North Carolina, Patrick McEnroe in New York, and the dean of the ESPN tennis team, Hall of Famer Cliff Drysdale in Texas. As always, we will go around the room. We'll get to everybody. I'll call out who is up and who is on deck. Batting leadoff today from Reuters, Frank Pingay. And on deck from Tennis Canada, Tom Tebbett. Good morning or good afternoon, Frank.
1: Hi. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, I guess I'll start off just a quick question about uh, the men's draw. I mean, there's been
2: no shortage of injuries in the lead-up to the final Grand Slam of the year. I'm just wondering, I mean, is it – How do
1: tennis players, uh, you know, is it because it's so late in the schedule? Is it the grind of this schedule? Does something need to be done about the tennis schedule? How do we account for all these injuries? Why are they happening? And is there any relief in sight for these players with virtually no off-season in tennis? I mean, a couple months, they really have no time to recharge. And I just wanted to hear your thoughts on, on this schedule and how, you know, the final Grand Slam of the season essentially is being robbed of some of the game's best talent because of
2: injuries which, you know, a lot of overuse, obviously, on their bodies, even though these are very fit
3: athletes we're speaking about. I have two quick thoughts on the schedule. I mean, we've been talking about this for decades now, Frank, and, uh, um, and nothing changes. In, in, in my opinion, uh, the, the schedule, it has somewhat been streamlined in, in the last couple of decades. Um, but if you the, the, the bigger the offseason. season the more that these players will play exhibition matches and, and uh, you know uh, uh, team tennis matches in Asia, etc. So the players themselves, while they scream about trying to get time off, they don't really take the time off that they need. Um, that's number one. Number two, um, the hard courts, I think, are a huge issue. We're playing best of five sets now, uh, the US Open. we play them on hard courts. And uh, it, no matter which way you look at it, there are going to be injuries. Um, so there are more injuries now. I think that's just a cyclical thing because the players do uh, they do take care of their health differently and more professionally now than they used to, for sure. But they're also subjecting themselves to much more serious uh, 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 tensions and pressures to the body than, than in the past.
2: Thank you. Wow. I'll add on this. I mean, as long as I've been playing, I've been involved in the game like 37 years, it, there's always been injury, And when I turned pro when I was 19 or uh, like 20, I played 40 tournaments a year. I played more. So we we have been talking about this forever. Good luck on ever getting it solved and making tournaments go away or get, getting all of the entities together to to make – some changes, but I'm not convinced by any means. If all of a sudden the guys had more time off, then all of a sudden that's going to cure injuries. Uh, guys are training way harder. They're they're doing everything they can. Nobody wants to be hurt. And obviously, with the poly strings now, guys are able to hit the ball harder. So maybe that's leading to some wrist issues that we've had. But there's no. There's no foolproof in any sport. Whatever you do, there's going to be injuries. Anybody who says there are not going to be injuries, that's ridiculous. But it's just unfortunate that a lot of them are piled up coming into this U.S. Open. But take two of them. Like Djokovic hadn't missed a slam in umpteen years. Stan's been very healthy. So, Mr. Corey and Ronich are two guys that get hurt a lot. But... It's just, you know, all coming together. It's a bit unfortunate. But like I said, I, I don't know that anybody has the right answer for what we possibly could do other than scrapping playing on courts.
1: I'd like to just follow up, Frank. This is Patrick with one more comment, which is uh, 95, maybe 90, 95% of the players in the U.S. Open main draw need to play as much as they can to make a living. That's just a reality. The only players that are making huge money, like huge, huge money, I'm talking about, are the top couple of players. That's it. So it's it's not like any other sport except maybe golf, where if you don't play, you don't make money, period. End of story. So there's no guaranteed contracts in tennis. And this sort of ties in with Cliff's point that if these players – um, are not going to play tournaments. They're going to find another way to try to make money because the window is limited, and um, everything else that the boys have said is 100% true, that they're, they're training harder, the players are fitter, um, but the ball's being struck a lot harder, so there's more. There's more body. Um, forget about the number. It's not the number of matches played or the number of tournaments played. It's the, uh, it's the intensity of the point and the way those are played. Um, But these players are going to play as much as they can. You know, there'd be a lot of players that'll look for a tournament. You know, the players that are ranked outside the top 50 or top 70 that are going to be playing during the second week of the U.S. Open so they can make some points and try to make some money. That's just a reality.
0: Thank you. Let me jump in. Cliff, you're a big golf fan, I know, uh, and I, I believe you have compared on air the 50th golf player versus the 50th ranked tennis player, or the 100th versus 100th, and uh, the disparity there.
3: Yeah, well, it that, that is what it is. It's what the market will bear, and I, I don't have a problem with that. I mean, Then you can get into a discussion about the prize money distribution in tennis. It's much easier to distribute things more evenly in golf. There is also more golf, uh, more money in golf um, period Um, just one addendum to that is that um, in women's sports women's tennis is far greater than than golf prize money in fact it's far greater than any other sporting endeavor you you can't say exactly any endeavor but definitely far greater in tennis than than any other sporting endeavor for women so uh, that's
0: all right, let's uh, let's move on from there. We're next up uh, from Tennis Canada, Tom Tebbutt, and then John Edgerton from Broadcasting and Cable.
2: Uh, this is Tom Tebbett, Just uh, there's always the obsession on Roger and Rafa, so I wonder if the three guys could sort of give their assessment of them. Uh, Roger, obviously, in Montreal, looked pretty upset. And who knows what the back, what kind of shape the back is in? And as a second question, outside of those two, who would you pick as the most likely guy to have success at the U.S. Open? Patrick. Uh, well, I'll take it first. I mean, Rafa, the number one seed, he hasn't won a hardcore tournament since 2014 Doha, but obviously he was awfully close, you know, in the finals of Australia. He was in the finals of Acapulco. He was in the finals of Miami.
1: Underway,
2: so. Yeah, I, I think it, it's dependent on his so, draw. Sorry,
1: every, so, sorry, everybody. Patrick, I just got cut off. Excuse me.
2: Okay. Um, I think it's dependent on his draw. Um, and, you know, when, when I can analyze his draw, you know, a little better, um, I could give you a little better analysis on that. He is a little bit susceptible on the hard courts, the big servers. Um, and, and Fed, before Montreal, I would have told you he was a huge favorite to win the Open based upon what I saw from him in Indian Wells, Miami, and Wimbledon. And I would have said a huge favorite. But then all of a sudden, maybe now with the back issue, and he, you know, it's almost like you have to see him for the first couple of rounds. Um, and if I had to... You know, I actually think now that will give a little hope to, to the rest of the field and the draw. And he's never made it past the round of 16, but, but I do think that Zverev is ready to, to win a major. I think he's that capable. Um, so he would probably be my second choice. If, if Fed is healthy, he's my first choice, and I would say Zverev is my second favorite to win the term.
3: So um, the Nadal's, I mean, it's well-documented, the Nadal story now number one, Tom, obviously, um, a remarkable, amazing comeback for him with the injuries that he suffered. Um, the uh, the part that always aggravates me is how quickly we write people off. So we write Federer off last year because he's out for six months. We, we, we wrote Nadal uh, uh, off for the last two years. He hadn't won a major, but people we forget that they're always there in the latter stages of these tournaments. And, and the, the mechanics and the, the stroke production and, and the, the health of the mentality of those players at the top doesn't change. And, uh, it, it, again, it becomes sort of cyclical. So Federer shows what he's made of, Nadal shows what he's made of, It's all a question of how Federer is is feeling and whether his back is an issue because he's got to go through seven best-of-five set matches on a hard court, and he looked dismal in Canada. Uh, So that is a big question. Uh, For me, the winner of the U.S. Open this year comes from either Nadal, Federer, uh, and then depending on Andy Murray and how he feels, and for the kids... I take uh, Zverev, team or or Kyrgios. I think they're the most likely candidates.
0: All right, we will, uh, Patrick, you there?
1: Yeah, I'm here, I'm back on, thank you. Okay, Um,
0: did you want to weigh in on the men's field?
1: Uh, sounds like that was uh, pretty well done. If anyone has a follow up, I'll I'll be happy to answer. Yeah.
0: All right. All right. Very good. Uh, next up, John Edgerton from Broadcasting and Cable, and then Richard Pagliaro of Tennis Now. And pardon me, but John has stepped away. I'll open Richard's. Oh, my. Okay. Very good. Thank you. Hello, Richard. You there?
4: I'm here, can you hear me? Yes, indeed. Okay, great, thanks for doing a call. I had a two-part question. First, if, you know, given everything you just said about Federer, if he were to win, where would you rate this season among, you know, his greatest seasons? And the second question was, for years, you know, I've heard Brad talk about the shot clock, the need for a shot clock. I was at the Qualys, I saw they had the shot clock for Qualys. Of these innovations they're testing during Qualys, which ones do you think will, Eventually become part of the main draw U.S. Open, and which ones do you think should or should not become, you know, become uh, standard for the U.S. Open? Well, right, Richard, go. this is Patrick. Uh, go ahead.
1: I'll, I'll, I'll go first since I was out. Uh, I, I think they're all great innovations, and I think uh, credit to the U.S.T.A. for being the first to, you know, take a legitimate shot at it and do it. Because we, in the broadcast business, have been I've been begging for, for this kind of stuff for a couple of years now. So I think it would, it would help tennis. I love the shot clock. Um, obviously it's got to be used, you know, smartly by the chair umpire. Um, the, the time that players take warming up and, and you know, set breaks drives me crazy. And I, I don't see that happening in any other sports. i certainly like to see that happening. Um, I'm not a hundred percent sold yet on the, uh, on the coaching part, I sort of go back and forth on that. There's things about it I like. There's things about it I don't like. In that, uh, you know, tennis is unique in that way. But I think it does bring a lot to the table. And having the coaches, you know, miked on the women's tour is is, is great for television, etc. So I'd like to still see see how that goes. But as far as all the all the stuff that's been put into place about uh, the timing of the match, I think all of that should stay, and I think everybody should do it.
3: Uh, I, let me just try, chime in, Patrick, and say that I agree 110% with what you said. School's still out on on how you do the coaching. I think it's really important for us in the television business to be able to be a part of the coaching process, whatever it ends up being. This is just experimental, and again, Uh, Bless the USTA for for starting this process, because I think it is just a start, Um, and and to get things moving, to get things a little snappier, while people are sitting there with uh, the remote in their hands, ready to change the channel, much less likely to happen when there's constant action on the tennis court. So it is a huge step by the USTA in the right direction, and I would be very surprised if the Australians don't at least follow and maybe take a, a step beyond what the USGA have done.
2: I, I'll, I'll add on, I, I think it's really exciting that we're finally trying some stuff. I mean, you know, on the men's side, we we did the trial 98-99, but the shot clock, coaching, I, I'm for, you know, listen, trying anything, you know. I'm so crazy about that they allow you to, like, after you throw the ball toss up, to ever, you know have more than one mulligan but that's you know but i am for all of the innovation i think it's exciting it's about time that we do it and i hope it sticks or at least starts you know implementing in all challengers and futures next year and soon it gets to the tour level and your second part to fed if fed were to win the open if he's not like the athlete of the year on every kind of major publication will be the greatest injustice that I've probably ever seen for tennis. It'll be his greatest year um, without a doubt. And, you know, he's pushing the limits to what a 36 year old we've ever seen in tennis. So um, it's just been a pleasure to watch.
4: As a a quick follow, where where would you all pick uh, the, the American most likely to go deepest in the draw?
1: Um, that's a great question, Richard. I, I agree, by the way, with Brad on Federer. Um, the, ol- the only thing you could say that's a, a negative in any way is that he didn't play on clay. So. But it's certainly at his age to do what he's done if he were to win three majors um, is, is off the charts. Uh, uh, the, for the American men, you know, I might give Query the, the look right now. I mean, he had a great Wimbledon. He seems to be, you know, healthy. Stock, I think, is somewhat questionable where he is physically. You know, he had the injury going into Wimbledon, and I don't I don't think he's in tip-top shape, isn't there? You know, we sort of know, you know, if he can get hot and get a decent draw um, and not play long matches, he certainly could be around in the second week. And I'm hoping that from one of the young guys we see something – um, that would give us hope that, that they could be in the, in the mix within the next two years in a major. So what does that mean? You know, to me, that means making a third, fourth round, like a Tiafo, a Fritz, uh, um, Donaldson, Escobedo. You know, I think those are the guys that have the best chance, and, and probably I'd put Tiafo and Donaldson of the young guys at the top of that list.
2: Well, I'll piggyback on that and say let's just go for some good draws. Um, how about four in the round of 32, three in the round of 16, and one to make the quarter, something like that. You know, something to give us a little hope, because the last few years we haven't had that that good runs runs on the men's side. Um, so something like that. But, you know, it's hard for me to prognosticate without seeing the draw. But, like I said, four in the round of 32, 3 light type in the round of 16 and one to make the quarters. I'd be happy with that. I,
3: I would just say about the, going back to Roger and, and his year that um, I, I, I just... Uh, if he wins the U.S. Open and he wins three majors out of four, um, the, the, I think it ends for once and for all the GOAT conversation. I think he... Uh, without it, I still think he's the greatest player that ever played. But that certainly... Um, consolidates his position in my mind as the best player to have played the sport of tennis. Um, it, it also just brings back one thing because we're talking about players playing too much and he was forced to take off six months at the end of last year and I cannot tell you how important I think it is that even a forced layoff like that and it just rejuvenates players and, and I think you'll see the same kind of thing from... When she comes back from Azarenka, I don't think a motherhood for Serena is going to hurt her either. Um, I, I just think these layoffs help a great deal. As for. Yeah, thanks two,
4: very two, much. Two.
3: Thank you. Yeah, just one quick thought. I, I think Sam Query, I agree with uh, Patrick. Sam Query's got the best chance among the Americans. He played a great Wimbledon, and it wasn't a fluke. Uh, sometimes you think he had, a, he had a good draw, but it was not a fluke for query. And then he wins a hardcore tournament in Acapulco. I just think he's got a really good shot at going further than anybody else. And where I don't agree with Patrick is I think one of the young guns is going to go uh, to the last eight this year. One of those that you mentioned, Tiafu or Donaldson or, or Taylor Fritz. I just, I just have that feeling because you don't, you don't have the top. You, you, you just have got a denuded field in some way. So I think it's an opportunity for them.
0: And going back to the shot clock, Patrick, are you playing the Invitational Tournament?
3: Yes, I am.
1: I will be. Playing and you're going
0: to have a shot clock.
1: Good. I mean, I'm sure my brother will get upset about it, but that that'll be good. That should be fun.
0: All right, something to watch. All right, next up, we will uh, turn to Bill Simons from Inside Tennis, and then Pete Bodo from ESPN.com.
2: Hi, guys. Uh, this is for all of you. Um, you've been around for decades, and our team observers, if you had to step back and say how our great game has, has changed, the one thing that has changed the most, aside from more money, how, how has tennis changed the most over, over the past decades?
1: Well, I think Cliff should lead off that. <clears throat> mm.
3: Uh, how, how has it not changed is a better question because there's just nothing similar from the way that tennis used to be played with three majors on grass and now, uh, now three majors, uh, at least two on a hard court. Um, uh, the, the, the whole character of the game has changed. The whole professionalism quotient has changed. Uh, this, the, 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 this, the stroke production for uh, virtually all strokes has changed. Um, I don't think it's a bad thing. In fact, I, I think tennis is as compelling as it's ever been, but it is different. It's, it, has, it has totally changed. It's now a professional sport where you've got um, a company, you know, as, as, uh, as our friend Mr. ranich says, you know, he's the CEO of the ranich company, and he's got seven advisors that are traveling with him. Well, that didn't happen in, in our day. It didn't even come close, so... So I don't know. Uh, Bill, just nothing's the same, Um, and it can. Fortunately, now the the evolution and the changes are happening as they are in everything else in life more quickly, and I'm so enthusiastic about that and so happy that eventually, the um, the administrators of the sport have realised that they have got to join the modern world, and uh, and present this sport to the public. In a more acceptable and a friendly, a
2: viewer friendly way. Uh, well, Bill, I'll just add on. I mean,
3: for me, the biggest change by far
2: is the athleticism and the movement of the game. Just seeing the way the guys and, and ladies can cover the court um, and do things, um, they're a lot bigger um, and it's even put more of a premium on movement. The rules are still the same. We've had, like, almost negative zero rule changes. So the game is still on the same, you, you know, simplicity as it's been. It's just being played at, at you know, a different level. I think it's cool the way it's going. I'm all for modern innovation and, and the continuing the trend. Um, maybe one of the, Like when I was a kid, I never got to see hardly anybody play other than if you got to see them play live. Um, and the access to literally, if I'm if I'm calling a match, I don't know somebody, I can go to YouTube. Heck, I can even see junior matches. So you can really have a lot more access to seeing and visibly seeing so many different people. I, I also find that quite interesting. Yeah, Bill, uh,
1: I'll just follow up on that, Bill, just to what what Brad said, which is. Go, go YouTube the Lendl Vlender French Open final. Uh, go, go YouTube the the McEnroe Borg U.S. Open final, or the Chrissy Martina. Any one of their finals, and uh, and these are the, the, the those are some of the greatest players of all time. And and then just watch the difference between that and the way the game is played now. You know the the as as Brad said, the athleticism, the speed of the game. Um, and by the way, all of those players I mentioned would be just as good if they grew up today as they were then. You know, if they, you know, my brother, when he was 45 was serving harder than when he was 21 and number one in the world, you know, because of the, because of the equipment. So, uh, you wow. know, imagine Borg playing on clay with a, with a Babylon racket. I mean, mm-hmm. imagine how good he would have been. But when Lendl played V-Lander, I mean, literally he would hit a ball. And he would walk, walk to the center of the court, mm-hmm. in the middle of the point. Yeah, you know. And, yeah. and again, this, these are these guys were both phenomenal athletes. So I just think it's cool, as Brad said, to watch the way the players have adjusted. Um, and I think the game is a heck of a lot more exciting to watch and and more fun to watch because players can just do a lot more with the equipment that's there. And just from the perspective
2: of the start of the open era. Uh, talk about the globalization. Could you guys have imagined it? Is it great for the game? Cut players now from from all over the Euro- world, and of course the domination by the Europeans. But just talk about that that factor.
3: Uh, I never. Yeah. Go ahead, Chris. The, the, the day used to be, Bill, when when uh, when I first got on the tour, when it was all about Americans and. Uh, and Australians and dominated right. the sport uh, totally. And even when we got the French Championships, it was still, you know, every so often Angeli would raise his his game right. and he would win the even even in no matter what the surface. That was a that was a huge there was a huge issue. So um, now it is a globalized sport. There's no doubt it is it's a globalized sport, and, and anybody from any country can. Uh, can participate in it. I mean, in, in some ways, it, it hurts a um, game in the U.S. because there are not any, there are not near as many dominant players from the U.S. as there used to be. But it is what it is.
2: Yep. I mean, Bill, when I first turned pro, like 81, 82, there were something like forty-two Americans in the top hundred. I remember being like ranked around fifty in the world. I think in eighty-two, I think I was like twenty-first ranked American. But you know what? We've moved on. The game is so global. I still think that Roger Federer is from Southern California. I can't believe that they put Switzerland by his name. But he looks like he, you know, he was growing up in Pete Sampras' neck of the woods. But Mm -hmm. the coolest thing is, you can be from anywhere and be great. And that's the Mm -hmm. opportunity tennis has. It doesn't mean just because you're from the states or or anywhere like Australia or you know anywhere now happens to be as Europe that that you, you tend to be great. But Literally, you could be from a small country, a big country. Look how much France wants to win. They haven't had a winner in a while, Italy. And they're coming from smaller European countries. But I do think that's the coolest thing, that you can be from anywhere, and you have the opportunity to be great. Right. Thanks, guys. All right. Now, off the disabled
0: list, Pete Bodo from ESPN.com, and then Matt Lambert at the Daily Mail. Uh, Gentlemen, hi. Hi. Two part, two, two unrelated questions. Number one, and maybe in light of the recent, uh, opening of a, of an investigation of a Dolgolopov main tour match and odd betting patterns, um, how do, how does each of you feel about Sharapova having gotten a U.S. Open wild card when the other tournaments, uh, Grand Slams did not issue her one it is, it is the first question. Second question is, uh, on the innovations, uh, is this, is the scoring system sacred? or is that open to uh, change and innovation as well?
3: Uh, let, me fire, uh, let me fire away in, in, in absence of, of, of anyone else. Um, Pete, uh, no, I think the scoring system should be open to discussion for sure. The, the question about best of three sets instead of best of five sets at the, at the majors is something I think should be addressed. I would not be opposed to it. I know it's controversial, but we've got to look at everything in the modern world, in the modern context. Do we still do? Do people in the modern world want to be spending four and five hours watching two people do anything? Um, and uh, you know, <laughs> just think about how how uh, if, how other sports are concertinaing their sports. Like cricket, it used to be a five-day affair. It somewhat still is, but the main. Uh, interesting cricket now is in three hours with uh, 20 overs. Uh, these people are adjusting to the modern world, and tennis needs to adjust in the same way. Um, what was the other question again?
0: Sharapova wild card, a decision by the USGA.
3: Okay, I'm uh, the the wild card is there in my opinion for one reason only, and that is to. Uh, for uh, the, the the organizers of, of the tournament can choose anybody for the benefit of the tournament, and if Sharapova is as she clearly is somebody that people want to see, that's why the wild card is there. I'm not opposed to her getting a wild card. Um, I'll, I'll,
2: I'll, I'll, go ahead, Brad. Go ahead. Go ahead, Patrick. Go ahead. I'll go last.
1: Right. Well, Pete. Uh, hello, Pete. Um, I don't. I don't. I agree with Cliff on the wild card. I. By the way, I didn't have a problem with um, the French Open or, or Wimbledon not giving her a wild card, okay? That's up to the tournament's discretion. I, I, I was in some of those U.S. Open wild card meetings, you know, back when I ran player development for the USTA. So I'm not surprised that they gave her one because uh, they've always made um, an effort to give former champions, you know, that needed some help with the wild card. So, uh, as Cliff said, you know, she's going to help with the, tur- the tournament, and I don't have any, any problem with them giving her a wild card at all. Um, the first part of your question was, uh, the, yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, I think we should look at it for sure. I mean, you know, I, the, 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 the event that I point to on the men's side, um, is the Olympics. You know, when they played the Olympics at Wimbledon, right? Uh, that was an amazing tournament. And who was, in the, who was in the final four of the tournament? You know, uh, Murray, uh, Djokovic, Federer, and uh, Del Potro, okay? So the idea that best of five um, is necessarily going to, you know, there's going to be the better player is going to win, you know, that argument, that argument to me is nonsense. It's total nonsense. I mean, obviously some epic matches have been five sets. We know that. But there's also been epic matches if it was just best of three. And look at the Masters events over the last, you know, we were, we were talking last week in Cincinnati, you know, with the, when we didn't have one of the big four, right, in the, fi- in the finals. And we had this crazy list of, you know, whatever it was, 42 consecutive Masters events. Okay, so the best players will win. If you played one super tiebreaker, the best player would win. For the most part, so I'm not saying we need to go there, but the Cliff, to Cliff's point, um, you know, and 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 even at the majors, you know, you, you know why they have best of five at a lot of the, at the majors. You know what they, they won't tell you, it's because they, they need to fill the courts, right? They need to have matches. Well, guess what? Why do we have to start at 11 o'clock or 10 o'clock? Why couldn't we start at uh, 2 o'clock or something and play on all you know with lights like they do at the Open and the Australian Open? You know, the Australian Open made the, has made a big push towards playing more courts at night, which is great for the fans and great for selling this product. So I think this idea that, like, you know, best of five, we have to do that is, 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 is ludicrous. If you, you can even say, let's play best two out of three up until, you know, the round of 16 or the quarter, and then we'll play best of five.
3: Let me just add one thing, Patrick. You know, we, we all say, geez, think of all the greatest matches of all time have been best of five. Well, have the women never played great matches? Excuse me? They've only They're ever right. played best of three set matches, and they've had great matches. So the idea that it has to be best of five to be great is, in my opinion, as you say, nonsense.
2: Okay. I, I'll go a little different twist. First, on the, on
3: the Doug Pavlov
2: thing, let's hope that he's not involved, because if he is, that's uh, that's a serious and egregious offense, um, but obviously we don't know all the facts and, and and anybody involved in this, you know, it's it's something that could you know really harm the sport and and the powers that be, you know, have to crack down on that Sharapova thing. It, it just shows you that you know the slams don't work together. You know there there are four slams, but. There are four entities, and so they can choose what they want to do with their own wild cards if the open wants to give you know Maria a wild card and they feel like it's best for the event uh, you know th- you know that's you know more power to them you know they they don't feel you know that like somebody telling them because somebody didn't get a wild card here, that doesn't mean they can't get one here so a wild card is it you know the term is discretion, they trade a few. You know, on uh, the men's and women's with the French and Australian, reciprocal ones, So, absolutely no worries. I'm a little different than these two in the history of the world. I'm adamantly against ever changing best of five because I think it's what sets the the men's game apart, which makes it absolutely great. Um, And so, I I am in no way, shape, or form, you know, want to see any change ever to best of five except for I would be totally cool with all four of the majors going to a tiebreaker in the fifth, and then one way to make the matches shorter, I think I would be totally for, if we did, would be to go to no ad scoring. That means maximum two games can be is 14 points, and then on a five-set match, you couldn't have a a five-and-a-half-hour match because you have shorter games, not to mention then you have more drama with three all points. So that would be the only change that I would would like to see, I'd actually like to see no ad scoring like they do in the doubles in some singles, start doing it in challengers and futures to see how that goes so they can study it. But as of now, I'd rather be shot the kneecap than watch best of three in a major. Well, thank you very much, Follows
0: all of you. All right, very good. Uh, Next up, Matt Lambert at the Daily Mail, and then we'll check for follow-ups.
4: Uh, hi guys, thanks for doing this. Um, first of all, uh, what, what kind of a how how do you see Murray's uh, chances going into the Open? Uh, with his kind of how do you see his form and fitness, and do you think he's got a, a, a special opportunity with so many of the top players being out? Um, and secondly, on Murray, do you think at some stage he needs to look at taking uh, an extended break like uh, Federer and Djokovic uh, is doing now? Thanks
3: um on the extended...
1: well, I think it, I, 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 yeah i mean sorry clev I'll, I'll just be real quick i mean i'm sure he could use an extended break he's played a ton of tennis and he's the kind of guy that you know has worked himself incredibly incredibly hard you know he's not as he's not as nimble or sort of as flexible as as Djokovic and fetter and, and obviously getting to number 1 which was an incredible accomplishment last year i think took a lot out of him in a lot of ways mentally and physically uh, there's no way to know how he's going to play at the Open. I mean, obviously he's capable of winning it, um, but uh, none of us have seen him play since Wimbledon, so it's impossible to have a read other than to say, I would say it's unlikely, you know, that he could win it, just based on that fact. But uh, if he can get through the first two, three rounds and physically look good, there's there's certainly no doubt that he's got to think that... It'll be Jason and Jim Gell hold and that's good. Good snap. Good hold. And the kick is blocked. Appalachian State has stunned the college football world. One of the – Hopefully he's, he's physically fit. I'm assuming he is. But once he starts to play a couple of matches, that's when we'll get a real idea.
2: You know what, for Murray, to me, it's two tournaments. The first tournament is the first week. You know, you sure as heck can't win the tournament in the first week, but you can lose it. So, obviously, he has no matches, you know, for a few months. So, his form is going to be a little off. So, it's all about somehow getting nine sets in the first week and get some confidence in the second week. Um, and, obviously, that the fact that he's here means he's probably feeling like, at least physically, that he's okay. I mean, that's the hardest thing when you have him played all of a sudden jump in and play best of five. Um, for, you know, what's interesting, this whole Fed thing. You know, it turned out like a genius, you know, that he took six months off. But what happened if it was a normal person, took that six months off, didn't get healthy, had to get surgery, or if he came back and played terrible? Would we, all, would we we'd be all saying, oh, is it a great play to just take all this time off? Ted's a unique case. He's a maestro. He's a genius. Just because it worked for the guy that's the conductor doesn't mean it's going to work for everybody else. So I say take time off if you need it, and it's an absolute. But taking time off if you don't really need to doesn't help you. And Murray doesn't also have a game like Fed where he can just pick up after not playing for months and be sharp. He's sharp by playing lots of matches. That's how he plays his best tennis, and he, you know, he has a great work ethic on the court, but he doesn't just win free points like Fed can do. So I'm still not convinced that all these guys just, okay, take the rest of the year off because your ranking is going to drop. You're in different positions, but they're all not like Fed.
3: I'm saying that uh, managing your year and how much you play, Matt, is a huge thing. I think that Andy could have probably done a better job. When I look at the amount of work that he and Djokovic and, and basically everybody else at the top of the game now, the amount of work that they put in, go back to a question from earlier today, it's staggering what kind of condition that you have to be in. And there is really no way that you can survive a 20-plus-year career running around the tennis court 11 months a year and not come up with injuries. So... If you're suggesting that, that Andy should take some time off, well, he has taken some time off now. Remember, he's a family man also. So it, it, to me, it's a balance of managing the events that he plays and how many he plays. I think he plays too much.
0: Thanks. Thanks very much. All right, Uh, we'll just try to squeeze in with our remaining time, uh, see if we have any follow-ups. Frank Pingay at Reuters, and then Tom in Canada.
1: Frank is good. Thanks, guys.
0: All right, we'll check in with Tom, and then back to Richard.
3: Uh, Guys, I just wondered about the the experiment with coaching in the courtside seats uh, at the U.S. Open qualifying. Um, You know, a guy can coach his player, but he can coach his player out loud in a way that would
2: intimidate a player on the other side. It just seems to me that there's a fair chance of chaos with that idea.
3: Yeah, I agree with that, Tom. As school's out, we have to see how that uh, that works. You know, you're talking about foreign languages now. Uh, you're talking about how loud can the coach be. Um, I'm, I'm struggling with that particular – I want the innovation. I'm 110% behind the innovation. That During the match and in between points, Um, I I suffer with that. I'd have to see how that works. But I think it could be mayhem and and, uh, worry about that. Well, I
2: think – go ahead, ahead, Brad, sorry. You know, I have to see it play out. I can tell you, Tom, since I've been traveling on the tour since 1981, and, and obviously there wasn't nearly as many players that were traveling with coaches, hardly any. It really started, you know, you know, maybe mid-'80s to early. By early-'90s to mid-'90s, tons of players had it. So, you know what's been going on forever? Third-base coaching. Coaches in different languages getting away with talking to a player the whole time in a different language. So the one thing, you know, like I said, I have to see it play out. But what I do like what the women's do, when you have the one coaching per set. the coaches have to sit next to the court and that eliminates coaches from third-base coaching, as I call it. So I, I like that they have to sit there, you know, right next to the court. And then you know, they're not allowed to talk to the, to the players because basically the umpire can see them. So if, you know, what, whatever they do, I, I like to see it, you know, i got to see it play out, but I do like how the women have it, once set, mic'd up, and they got to sit right next to the court. Um, but I guess if they, they allow the coaching from the stands, it's one way of saying, okay, we're just eliminating all of this cheating that's been going on in the stands for the last 25 years.
0: All right. We will uh, touch uh, touch in with uh, Richard uh, Pagliaros if he has a follow-up.
4: Yeah, I just had a to- quick one um you know you guys mentioned Zverev earlier what about other dark horses like you saw Dimitrov in Cincinnati and then last year at the Open uh, you know Monfi and Puy both had great runs who would you select as dark horses and then secondly during the Australian Open I heard all of you comment about the surface speed how that helped Federer and Venus because it was a quicker court any sense of what we'll see at the Open with the speed of the court and Patrick when you worked with them was that something you sat down in meetings and said, we're going to make the court, you know, medium bounce or quick quick court? Was that something you actually decided on before the tournament? Well,
1: that's a good question. I mean, that that definitely, you know, when I was there, that, that was something I, I tried to find out. Um, you know, it's a, it's a different division, sort of just professional tennis division, which is a little bit different than player development. But I think that there's definitely, uh, you know, a uh, – uh, a method to the madness as far as, you know, trying to get it to a certain speed that, um, but I, to be honest, no, there were never conversations like let's make it good for Americans. You know, I think it's more about let's, let's make it a speed. That's going to work. That's going to be, you know, a more, a more exciting brand of tennis, you know, for people to watch. And so generally speaking, you know, the open has been a, usually a little bit quicker than the other ones. Although, as you said, I think we all noted that the Australians seem to be a bit quicker. Sometimes it has to do with the balls as well and, and just the overall conditions. But um, to answer your question, no. I mean, there was never, at least when I was there, you know, let's make this a good court for our our best players. Maybe it was different when it was Sampras and Agassi when we had a couple of the at least best male players at the top. Um, so, it, it, But there, there's also the issue, I think, that the, the out, outside courts can play differently from – you know, the Arthur Ashe Stadium and the and the other show court. So that seems to be the case at all the majors. You know, they, they would say Susan Longlin is slower than Philippe Chatrier, So I think it sort of guns with the territory. But generally speaking, um, you know, the quicker the better probably for someone like a feather. Absolutely.
3: Um, the interesting thing to me, Richard, is that um, when you consider the um, – the alternatives. You, what changes the uh, the presentation of the sport are fundamentally the tennis balls that you use, how heavy they are, uh, how they're pumped up, what kind of pressure they have, the strings that the players use in the tennis rackets along with the tennis racket construction itself, and then finally the court speed. And you have control over that. So uh, Patrick says that they didn't in those days sit down and, and, uh, and consider the court speed. Um, they certainly do that, I think, uh, judiciously in Australia. And, and they say, you know, w- w- where do we want this court speed? Not necessarily to help their local players, but to help the presentation of the sport. It's a key element, the court speed.
4: Well,
2: Richard, I, I mean, obviously, I, I, I've never been involved, you know, with the USA or any of these entities. But I can tell you, in the eight years of coaching Andre, um, or when I was coaching Roddick, no one ever called me or asked me, you know, what what would be best for my player. So obviously, they do what's best for the tournament, best for the fans, and, and it's probably best for the integrity of the sport that that you know maybe they have like a little council on okay, how are we going to do the courts? But I do know one thing that the court can drastically change from. Even if it's a slower court, if it's 100 degrees, the court's going to play quicker. If it's 50 degrees at night, it plays, you know, considerably slower, and the balls can react to, to the conditions that it is. Um, I, I, I do think that that obviously your first thought is if it's your home slam that you probably want to, you know, help your players as much as you can. That's that's only a natural feeling that, that you would think, oh geez, we have a bunch of guys that are better on slower courts. We have a bunch of guys that are better on faster courts. But maybe they, they they want the courts, you know, suited better for Roger and Rafa. I don't, I don't know these things, but I do think it's kind of fair that everybody rocks up at the same time and, like, darn, the courts are slower this year. They're quicker this year. So I, I do like that whole kind of finding out or, you know, seeing people tweet the first few days how the courts playing. I think that's kind of exciting that we don't know.
3: The biggest variable is definitely in the hands of the administrators, because the more sand you put in that final layer of acrylic paint that they put on top of the court, the slower the court, the less sand or no sand at all makes it very quick. So it's a variable that can definitely be managed.
4: Thanks very much. Thank you.
0: All right, and thank you all. Good stuff.
4: Uh, I know
0: folks have to get going, so I appreciate the interest. Uh, of Brad and Patrick, thank you very much for your time. It all starts Monday, all day, every day on the ESPN Networks. And
1: uh, till then, have a good day and enjoy tennis. So long, everybody.